Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. I would say yes, because the entire Christian world practically observes Christian uh, Christmas. Uh, the answer I'm going to present is no, that uh, Christmas is not for Christians, and it's not my intent to offend anybody, and I can see where uh, this topic could be offensive. In fact, if I think of my own childhood, uh, Christmas was the most important day of the year for us. Uh, we grew up, well, initially started out in life with, um, in a home of domestic abuse, and there was no Christmas. And there was hardly any happiness. And when my mother escaped with uh, four children, one of the things that was really important to her was to give us a good Christmas every year. And it was spectacular. We were poor. We had nothing. But Christmas Day was special. And as we were counting down to Christmas the night before, we couldn't even sleep. We were so excited. And I didn't realize how much sacrifice my mother went through to save all year. She would uh, put uh, her savings in Canadian bonds, and then cash those bonds before Christmas, and every one of us would get a special gift. And then the Salvation Army and other charitable organizations would donate gifts to us as well, and then my aunts and uncles would buy us socks and underwear. But it was really, really special. We'd get up, we'd have a big breakfast, and uh, after breakfast then, when we cleaned everything up, we could open our gifts. And, and my mother really went out of her way to make it memorable, and to make it special. So if I think back to that, to have somebody tell me then that Christmas is not for Christians, if I was a Christian then, I I would be offended. We were not Christian, and my mother made no uh, effort to try to make it a religious event. It was purely an annual special time for us as a family. When I was 16, however... My mother shared with me an article that showed or proved that Christmas was pagan. And I read this article, and right then and there I made the decision, I'm done with Christmas. Uh, So since the age of 16, I have not celebrated Christmas, although I have very fond memories. Welcome. Although I have very fond memories of Christmas. So the question is, does it matter? Whether we celebrate Christmas or not, You know, you think it's okay, I think it's not. Does it matter? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, where we'll first answer the question, does it matter? Revelation 13, uh, those of you who are familiar with the Bible know that the book of Revelation is a prophetic book, and it's telling us what is to happen in the future. And in fact, in the sermon later today, we will be beginning a study in the book of Revelation, But for now, let's just look at chapter 13. And in verse 16, it says this. And he, this beast power, causes everyone, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, everybody, the whole earth, in the future, will receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Verse 17, that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
And then if you look at chapter 14, so the whole world now is receiving this mark. Welcome. The, the whole world is receiving this mark on their foreheads or in their right hand. And unless they have it, they're not able to participate in the economy. And look at chapter 14 and verse 9 to see what God thinks about this. I'm getting a little bit of a, a feedback or something. I don't know what that is. Verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same. So, so many people are going to receive this mark. But anybody who receives it, God says, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, it's undiluted, into the cup of his indignation, his wrath. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So God is making it very clear that anyone who receives this mark in the time ahead of us Although they'll be able to participate in the economy of the time, God will punish them undiluted. They're going to experience the wrath of God. So what the book of Revelation shows us is that the world will be deceived at this time. And people will receive the mark thinking it's a good thing. Deception happens in layers. So if we accept a small lie and another small lie and another small lie, it's not difficult then for us to swallow a big lie. And the mark of the beast is a big lie. But if we don't care about our religion, and we say, well, you know, Christmas, it might be pagan, but so what? Or we, we want to say that, no, it is Christian. This is a deception. And we are setting ourselves up for the grand deception. So let us be careful as we examine this question, is Christmas for Christians, because the Christians who succeed in the future are going to be those who hold very deep conviction about their faith. What we don't want to be is the Christian who thinks we know what we believe, and at the first hurdle we fall, because someone's able to pull the rug from under us and say that what you actually believe is pagan. I'll just start with this video, which is, does everybody know Pat Robertson? Pat Robertson, famous evangelist, and really the voice of Christianity in many ways. And let me, I thought I had this set up. Let me begin with this video. Where he is answering the question, somebody writes in and asks, you know, my friends will not observe Christmas because they say it's pagan. What should I do? Or how should I respond to them? And he answers here. David, who says, we have friends who do not celebrate Christmas because they say December 25th is really a pagan holiday. Well, I agree that Jesus may not have been born on December 25th. He certainly was born as described in the Bible. How do I respond to them? Well, in a sense, tell them they're right. Uh, you see, the, the, the winter solstice a couple of days later was the shortest day of the year. And the pagans had something called Saturnalia. 
And it was a time of lawlessness because all the laws were suspended. And people, the, a bunch of singers were actually wandered the streets naked singing. And, and then they had orgies, sexual orgies. It was a mass thing. Well, when the Catholic Church came along in Italy, the, the Romans and others didn't want to give up their holidays. So they said, okay, we'll Christianize it. And uh, so they said, okay, we'll say the birth of Jesus was the 25th of December. They, and then there was a, a monk who began to add it up. You see, uh, if you read in Luke, it, it says there's a census taken when Quirinius was governor and so forth and so on. And uh, they, they could take those leaders and figure the exact time dating from the foundation of Rome. And that's when the dates were established. And so they get pretty close to the date. But uh, to say it's the 25th shepherds were out abiding in the field, it gets a little cold at night. I mean, were they out there in the middle of winter? Uh, you know, I don't know. I've been out there on the shepherd's field and on Christmas Eve. It's very nice. But it's cold. And nevertheless, I mean, what was going on? So all this business about mistletoe, pagan. Christmas trees, pagan. Giving out gifts, pagan. Every bit of it is pagan. Every single bit of it is pagan. We've Christianized it all. And uh, so that's good. And so we have time. We celebrate for Jesus. Everybody gets all misty-eyed. But the truth is, we, they're all pagan. But the birth the of Jesus. But the intent of the heart is what it's about. Exactly. So we have Christianized all these things. We give gifts in the name of Jesus. We celebrate his birthday. And uh, it's a nice thing. And so so I was actually amazed when I saw this clip. Uh, Pat Robertson, in many ways, is the voice of traditional Christianity. And there you heard very clearly his assessment that everything about Christmas is pagan. But he ends the, the segment by saying, it's, or the lady says, it's the, intent, it's the intent of the heart that matters. And he agrees. So he acknowledges that the whole thing is pagan, but the intent of the heart is to honor Christ. So what I want to do in the study with you today is answer this question which I guess the first part is already answered uh, is Christmas for Christians then I want to say is it right for us to celebrate Christmas it's going to be very clear obvious that it's pagan it has pagan roots but if the intent of the heart is to observe or honor Christ is it okay for us to honor Christ with Christmas and then finally I'm going to tell you ahead of time the answer is no uh, what should we do to honor Christ? And for those of you who came a little late, I did start out by saying the intent here is not to offend anybody. And I have very fond memories of observing Christmas as a child. Uh, and so I could imagine if somebody came to me at that time and wanted to take Christmas away, I, I might find it offensive then. So our, our intent is not to offend, but it's to begin a discussion, to begin a dialogue. And let's explore this together. And we'll leave some time at the end for questions and hopefully this will be the beginning of a, a further discussion. So first, some background. What uh, Pat Robertson was referring to was the year 336 AD, when the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and that Christmas would be celebrated by the whole empire to honor the birth of Jesus Christ. In this, on the website whychristmas.com, uh, listen to this. 
The first recorded date of Christmas being celebrated on December 25th was in 336 AD, during the time of the Roman Emperor Constantine. And, and Constantine, by the way, was not a Christian. He was the Roman Emperor, and he made Christianity the official religion of the empire, but he himself did not convert to Christianity. In fact, he wasn't baptized until his death. On his deathbed, he was baptized. A few years later, Pope Julius I officially declared that the birth of Jesus would be celebrated on December 25th. So for 300 years, Christians were not observing Christian, uh, Christmas. But on 336 AD, it became an official celebration in the, in the Roman Empire. December 25th might have been chosen because the winter solstice and the ancient pagan Roman midwinter festivals called Saturnalia, which Pat Robertson referred to, took place in December around this date. So it was a time when people already celebrated things. The winter solstice is the day that there is the shortest time between the sun rising and the sun setting. It happens around December 21st. To pagans, this meant that the winter was over and spring was coming, and they had a festival to celebrate it and worship the sun for winning over the darkness of winter. In Scandinavia and some other parts of northern Europe, the winter solstice is known as Yule, and it is where we get our Yule logs from. So Saturnalia was this big celebration celebrating the conquest of the sun over darkness. So we had the shortest day of the year on the winter solstice, and then as the days started to get longer, this represented the, the rebirth of the sun, and it was a big celebration. Not only in Rome and various parts of the empire, all over the world. This custom of worshipping the sun is a custom that spreads throughout the entire globe. And you'll see here the, 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 god, the Roman god Sol Invictus, or the Invincible Sun, which was the Roman god. But this worship of the sun didn't begin in Rome. It goes back, way back, to ancient civilizations. And you'll see here in Egypt the worship of the sun. So the, the sun god was worshipped all the way back to the original civilization of Egypt. And even before Egypt, the sun god was worshipped in Babylon. So, and, and from Babylon it spread all over the world. Most Christians don't understand this and the origin of sun worship because traditional Christianity focuses on the New Testament and it for the most part ignores the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament is the book of Genesis, and Genesis is all about origins. So it's hard to understand our world today if we don't understand origins. Where did everything start? And if you'll turn with me to Genesis 10, we actually see the beginning of, of the worship of the sun, or the sun god, or the sun of God. Genesis 10 and verse 6. Again, Genesis being the book of origins. Genesis 10 and verse 6 speaks of the sons of Ham, one of the sons of Noah. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Phut and Canaan. 
So Kush today being in the Ethiopia, area of Ethiopia, Mizraim, Egypt, Foot, Libya, and Canaan, uh, most of uh, Palestine. And the sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah, and Sabta and Rama and Sabteca, and the sons of Rama, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat this man named Nimrod, so the grandson, great-grandson of Noah. And he began to be a mighty one in the earth. So this is significant. This is the first time the scripture mentions this, this man called Nimrod, who everyone in the earth acknowledged as being a mighty one. There was something very special about him. And it says in verse 9, he was a mighty hunter. Uh, the, word, the English word is before. The better translation would be against. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. He was in opposition to the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter, against the Lord. So whenever they, back in this time, were speaking of someone who was very powerful, they would refer to that person as having the strength of Nimrod. Nimrod became, uh, took on names in different cultures, different societies, one of which is Hercules. And so today, we even have it in our language. If there was something really heavy, if this was really heavy, I might say to you, well, you're going to need the strength of Hercules to lift that, or you'll need Herculean strength to move that. And it's a reference to this man, Nimrod, who was powerful. He was a human being, but he was powerful. Now, drop down to verse 10. And it tells us more about this man, Nimrod. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So we learn now, not only was he a powerful man on the earth, but he was a king. He established a kingdom, and he reigned over men. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So in the Middle East, in the area today we call Iraq. Out of that land went forth Asher and built Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kala. Now in chapter 11, verse 1, it says this. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. So everybody was coming to this man, Nimrod, and they, they dwelt there in his land under his kingdom, under his rule in Shinar. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. This was something that we have to do thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar, and they said, Come on, or go to, come on, let us build a city and a tower. And this is significant. So they wanted to have a civilization and a tower, which represents worship, religious worship. So we want to control people, keep them within a city, and use religion to control them. So this combination of pol uh, politics and religion to gain control over people, and whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So this was in defiance of God. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one. So they're all together. And they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. So there was something that Nimrod was lead leading 
that God was very concerned about. This was a very powerful man who had the whole earth under his control. And this was his idea, to establish a civilization and a worship system in defiance of God. And it was a big idea. This was something that would take a lifetime of effort to build. And God's response was not, oh, that's silly. God's response, when God came and looked, it, it was a, a, a sense of responding with urgency. So when God saw this, he said, Behold, the people are one, and they have all one language, and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So whatever this was, it was going to put them in a position where they were unstoppable. Whatever this plan was that Nimrod had in mind, God had to stop it. Verse 7. Go to, let us go down and confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So they had this big idea, this big plan, this big vision, and God thwarted it or frustrated it by changing up their language so they couldn't understand each other. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Verse 9 is significant. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord there confounded the language of all the earth, and from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So the people have one concept. They have one ideology. They share a vision. All God does is confuse the language. So suddenly, we, all of us in this room have the same big idea of how we can control humanity. And what God does is change our language. He doesn't change the idea. So although we don't understand each other's language, we all still have the same vision, same concept, same ideology, and we, from there we spread to the whole earth. And this is why sun worship is everywhere. Because what they are really worshipping is Nimrod. Nimrod became the, the sun god. When he died, they said that he uh, ascended to heaven and became the sun god. And so this is why the worship of the sun really is the worship of this man, Nimrod. The whole earth is involved in this Nimrod worship. He's the first pharaoh. He's the first king of Babylon. He's the first king of Assyria. All the ancient civilizations, they built their cities the way they learned from Nimrod. They came together and it was intelligent people and architects and builders and masons. And they had a plan to build this city with this religious oversight. And that was broken up. They took these concepts and began civilizations all over the world. So every single civilization all over the world has Nimrodian worship at its foundation, at the root of its civilization. Now, every civilization, with one exception. The whole world is of one concept. We worship the sun, except for one nation. Look at chapter 12. And you'll see here, just as an example, with the different nations, what they call Nimrod, his wife Semiramis, and their child Tammuz. These na- every single culture has names for these three gods because they all started from the same root. 
and from here, they filled the entire earth. So this concept of Samaramis, Nimrod, and Tammuz, Tammuz fills the whole earth. Archaeology shows this worship is everywhere, except for one place. And that one place, we'll see here Genesis 12 and verse 1. So in the midst of this worship of Nimrod that's spreading throughout the whole earth, we come to chapter 12. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get out of your country and from your kindred, and from your father's house. The, his, his country, his kindred, his father's house were all involved in the worship of Nimrod, just like everybody else. And God told this man to leave them and go to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So all the families of the earth are cursed under Nimrod influence. But through this man, Abraham, God is going to establish a nation. And from that nation, this curse of the earth is going to be reversed. And the whole earth is going to be blessed because of this man, Abram, later to become Abraham. Verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. So this one man, because of his response to God, the God of Israel, God sets him apart and teaches him true worship. And so this man and his descendants worship the God of Israel, while the whole earth is steeped in sun worship and the worship of Semiramis. So the sun is Nimrod, the moon is Semiramis, and their child Tammuz. In chapter 26 of Genesis, again, this is the book of origins, how everything got started. So what we see is the whole earth paganized, the whole earth worshipping the sun and the moon, except for this one nation that God establishes in Abraham. Genesis 26 and verse 3. Now God is now speaking to Abraham's descendant Isaac. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For unto you and unto your seed I will give all these countries. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And will give unto your seed all these countries. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So same intention. God is going to bless everybody, but it's going to be through Abraham and his descendants. Notice verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So the whole world has gone after Nimrod. The whole world is worshipping the sun. This one man, Abraham, obeys God, keeps his commandments, keeps his laws, keeps his statutes. And because of that, God is going to bless the whole world through this one man and establish a, a counterculture. So the whole world is, has Nimrodian culture. God is going to establish a counterculture in Abraham, or we can say now in Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Israel. Part of the, this obedience 
God speaks of his commandments and his statutes and his laws. We see part of this in Leviticus 23. Let's go to Leviticus 23 to see what is it that the nation of Israel did that was so different from the other nations all around them. So whether it was Egypt or Assyria or Babylon, all these other cultures were all involved in the worship of Nimrod and the worship of the sun and looking at the sun and the moon and and worshiping them. Israel was different. They had direct revelation and instruction from God through Abraham, passed down to Isaac, then to Israel and ultimately to the whole nation through Moses. Now in Leviticus 23, uh, God speaks of Abraham being faithful to his commandments. And in Leviticus 23, verse 1, it says this, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, this counterculture. So there's this group of people amidst all these other nations that are all, all following the same ideology, just different languages. There's this nation that is different. And God says to Moses, speak to the children of Israel, this nation that he's setting up, and say unto them, concerning the festivals of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. So these are assemblies. So tell, tell the nation about these feasts that are to be holy assemblies. And notice he says this, even these are my feasts. He doesn't say these are your feasts. He doesn't say these are Jewish feasts. He says, even these feasts that I'm sharing with you, they are my feasts. They are the feasts of the Lord. And these feasts, holy days, holy assemblies, holy convocations, Abraham was observing them. Abraham was faithful to them. And God is now setting up this nation that is to be a counterculture to all of the pagan cultures and is to be a leader to all the pagan cultures. And all of these nations will be blessed because of this nation observing these feast days. We'll we'll go into this a bit later, but if you read the rest of the book, it'll speak of these feast days. They're called the Moedim. There's in the spring, Passover, unleavened bread, the first fruits, and then Pentecost. And then in the fall, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll talk about them a bit later, but these are the feast days that God says, these are my feasts. The rest of the world is observing Saturnalia. December 25th is a big day for all the sun worshippers. Easter is a big day for all the sun worshippers. For the people of God, they do something completely different. God says, these are my feasts. And these are the feasts that Israel observes. Is it okay, though, for God's people to participate in pagan festivals? And if you look here, you'll see, again, the sun worship. These were ugly ceremonies to ancient cultures. So this is an example of the Aztecs observing human sacrifice for their sun god. 
And every year, people have to be sacrificed, and they offer the heart to the sun god in, in hopes of appeasing him. And that's the, that's the power and influence that this sun god had over all these ancient cultures. It even got to the point where Israelites participated in this worship. And Israelites would take their children, and this is the god Molech, the same Nimrod, and they would sacrifice their children. They would put their children in the fire to appease the sun god. Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy is called the second law. It's where God is instructing the children of Israel. Uh, This is the generation that's actually going to go in and inherit the promised land. The first generation dies off because of their disobedience. Their children are going to inherit the promised land. And so Moses repeats the law to them. And here we see in Deuteronomy 9 and verse 4, God says through Moses to Israel, Speak not you in your heart after that the Lord your God has cast them out from before you, saying, For my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. So they're going to go into the promised land. And God is saying to them, Be careful and don't become arrogant or conceited. And think because you're righteous, that's why you're inheriting this land. Instead he says, But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord does drive them out from before you. So it's because of this wickedness that this sun worship was, it involved prostitution, it involved child sacrifice, it involved every wickedness. To, and, and that was the, Nimrod was a very evil man. And his, his wife uh, was a very evil woman. And their child, Tammuz, who then married Semiramis, so he married the mother, they were involved in all kinds of filth. And their, their worship system formalized everybody to participate in this filth. So God is saying to Israel, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm taking you into this land and driving out these nations. It's because of their wickedness that I'm driving them out and establishing you. Verse 5. Not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart do you go in to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God does drive them out from before you, and that he may perform the word which the Lord swore unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in a sense, God is saying it's got nothing to do with you. I'm fulfilling the promise that I made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Israel. And... I'm fatigued of the evil that's in the land. So I'm going to put you in the land to fulfill my promise to Abraham and to put a stop to this uh, child sacrifice and, and pornography and all the evil and filth that's taking place in the land. Look now at chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land, which the Lord God of your fathers gives you to possess it all the days that you live upon the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains and upon the hills and upon every green tree. So God wants this completely wiped out. He wants the land cleansed. And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars, 
and burned their groves with fire. So this is the religious worship system that Nimrod was establishing, that God interrupted, that they all then took to their different civilizations as they established their civilizations. And God is saying completely for these nations, tear it all down, burn their groves of fire, and you shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Notice verse 4. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. And this really is the point that I'm driving here. That the people of God were to be separate and apart from the nations around them. And God is saying, as you go in to possess the land, they have their customs and they have their practices. You shall not do what they do. So, and we'll see this a bit later, the, the, the notion that we can adopt pagan practices and use these practices to worship the true God, God is saying he'll have none of it. That there is a separation between the people of God and the practices of the people of God and the pagans around them. He says here in verse 4, you shall not do so unto the Lord your God. Don't bring these practices to me. Dropping down to verse 29 of the same chapter. When the Lord your God shall cut off the nations from before you, where you go to possess them, and you succeed them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you be not snared by following them after that they be destroyed from before you, and that you inquire not after their gods, saying, Hmm, how did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. God is saying, don't do this. This is wrong. Don't, don't, don't even be curious about what they do. Everything they do is wicked. Everything they do is evil. I'm wiping them out. I'm bringing you in. I'm establishing you in the land. And I'm going to bless the whole earth through the system that I set up with you. So don't corrupt my religion with their religion. How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. You shall not, verse 31, you shall not do so unto the Lord your God. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, which he hates, have they done unto their gods. So the things that they do, and we'll talk about the Christmas tree a little later, but something as simple as the Christmas tree, God is saying everything that they do is an abomination to him, and he hates it. So if we don't understand, we're going to take this tree, bring it into our house, and say, I'm worshiping Christ. And God is looking at it and saying, this represents something reprehensible and abominable to me. Don't bring it to me. Don't inquire how they serve their gods, because everything they do is an abomination. Which he hates, verse 31, have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. And what you'll see, as you read Deuteronomy, and God gives all of these instructions, as you then continue in the Old Testament, and read First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings and the various prophets, what you see is the nation of Israel breaking all of these instructions. So the very thing that God is telling them not to do when they go into the land, that's exactly what they do.
And so you even see here the, the Israelites sacrificing their sons and daughters to, to the Nimrodian gods. Verse 32. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. You shall not add to it, nor diminish from it. Now as an example, turn to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. And you even saw it in the clip there that I played earlier, the YouTube clip, where, you know, Pat Robertson's there saying, you know, Christmas tree, pagan, Yule log, pagan, Christmas lights, pagan, Santa Claus, pagan, everything's pagan. And then the response to all of that is, yeah, but it's the intent of the heart, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's the intent of the heart. And, and that's exactly what you see here in Israel. That, yeah, these are pagan practices, but I want to do this to, to the God of Israel. It's the intent of the heart. And God is saying, don't do it. And yet you see Israel doing exactly this. Second Kings 17, look at verse 13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel, his chosen people, the people that he was going to bless to fulfill the promise to Abraham. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers saying, turn you from your evil ways. They failed. They turned to the practices of the pagans around them. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants the prophets. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. So this is a generational thing where they're turning their back on God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them. So they started to do the very practices of the people that were influenced by Nimrod and not the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And went after the heathen that were round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord. So you start with a little bit, and then a bit more. You know, it's one deception you accept, then you accept another deception, and before you know it, you've swallowed the whole, the whole thing. And they left the commandments of the Lord their God, and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. So, the, the heavenly signs, and we'll see this a bit later, the sun and the moon are there to tell the children of Israel when the holy days are, when they are to come together in sacred assembly. All of the pagan nations are worshipping the sun and the moon, and now we have Israel worshipping the sun and the moon and the whole host of heaven. Verse 17. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. The very thing that in Deuteronomy God said, don't do it. They become so caught up in this thing that they even put their children in the fire. And they used the divination and enchantments and all things that these nations learned from Nimrod and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. 
Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. So Israel was then conquered by Assyria and, and disbanded. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Look at now at Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10. So now only Judah is left. And look at Jeremiah 10. Just to again see how the, the, this nation interacted with the nations around them. Jeremiah 10. And verse 1, hear you the word which the Lord speaks unto you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the heathen. Same thing he said to them from Deuteronomy. Do, and the, all the prophets come and tell them the same thing. Do not learn the way of the heathen. And do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them. They worship the sun god. They worship the moon. They worship the stars. Israel is to be different. They're to understand that God created these bodies to tell time so that they could know when holy time occurs. The Sabbath occurs every week. That's holy time. Then there are annual Sabbaths. That's holy time. Use the sun and the moon to understand when these appointments are. The heathens don't understand this. They believe that Nimrod became the sun and Semiramis became the moon, and so they worship the sun and the moon. Learn not, verse 2, the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. They lead to nothing. For one cuts a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and gold and fasten it with nails. And with hammers, that it move not. It's so important to them, they have to fasten it. They have to decorate it. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not, do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also in it, is it in, in them to do good. This concept of having a tree during Saturnalia, during the celebration of the rebirth of the sun, it goes all the way back to Nimrod. And the tree is a phallic symbol. And it represents the private part of Nimrod, which, uh, as legend has it, when he was destroyed by, by Seth and chopped up in 14 pieces, his wife went looking for him, and when she found the phallus, she claimed that it, it was miraculously impregnated her. And that's how she had the child Tammuz. And so Tammuz then became the son of God. And so they would use this evergreen tree because in the middle of winter, it was still fertile. It was still alive. And they said that represents Nimrod. And so here you see these people going in all over the world. We have this custom of going and finding a tree in the middle of winter that's green and bringing it into the house and decorating it. Ancient custom. And God is warning Israel, don't do this. Don't do this. In fact, the wreath represents the private parts of Semiramis. And so the, 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 the wreath and the tree are representing the union of Semiramis and, and Nimrod. 
And we see this all over the world. All over the world. You'll see, in fact, these obelisks representing Nimrod. And there'll always be a wreath or a sundial close by representing Semiramis. And so this, this basically filthy cult, these practices were being celebrated. Instead of being condemned, they were being celebrated. And so at this time, then it's no wonder when Pat Robertson was talking about Saturnalia and the orgies that they would participate in, it's all to their sun god because they want to make what's evil good. Here's a quote from a book called Shocked by the Bible by Thomas Nelson. Shocking as it sounds, followers of Jesus Christ in both America and England helped pass laws making it illegal to observe Christmas, believing it was an insult to God to honor a day associated with ancient paganism. So in America and in England, Christians helped pass laws to say it's against the law to celebrate Christmas because it was so clearly pagan. Today, you would never believe that. The whole Christian world practically celebrates Christmas. But here, it was considered pagan. In fact, if you look at this Christmas card, this is a a pagan atheistic Christmas card, and it says, which of these is a pagan symbol or tradition? And then at the bottom it says, in fact, all of them belong to the winter solstice celebrations practiced worldwide thousands of years before Christianity. To this day on December 22nd, our sun, Sol, rises higher each day, promising the birth of new life on earth. So this is a Christmas card that if you're a pagan or an atheist, you can buy this card to show that all the symbols of Christmas are in fact pagan. So when we as Christians try to cling to Christmas, anybody who does a little bit of research makes us a laughingstock because they know it's very obvious that Christmas is, is founded in paganism. Most of you would probably recognize the name Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, very famous uh, Christian leader in the 1800s. He, today, a lot of people still quote him. Listen to what he said about Christmas. Charles Spurgeon, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon on December 24, 1871, said this in a sermon. December 24, the night before Christmas, 1871. We have no superstitious regard for times and seasons. Certainly we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangements called Christmas. First, because we do not believe in the Mass at all, but abhor it. So this Christ Mass, when everybody came together to worship the birth of Christ or to honor the birth of Christ, he says here, we do not believe in the Mass at all, but abhor it. We hate it. Whether it be said or sung, in Latin or in English, and secondly, because we find no scriptural warrant whatever for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior. So first he says, we hate the Christmas. We're not, we have nothing to do with this. We don't care if it's in Latin or in English, if it's spoken or it's sung, we want nothing to do with it. And secondly, there's nothing in the scripture that tells us to observe the birth of Christ. And consequently, its observance is a superstition because it is not of divine authority. 
That's a sermon he gave the night before Christmas in 1871. He goes on to say, When it can be proved that the observance of Christmas and Whitsuntide and other popish festivals was ever instituted by a divine statute, we also will attend to them, but not until then. So he's saying, show me in the Bible where it says to observe Christmas. And if you can do that, I'm all in, but not until then. It is as much our duty to reject the traditions of men as it is to observe the ordinances of the Lord. We ask concerning every rite and rubric, is this a law of the God of Jacob? And if it be not clearly so, it is of no authority with us who walk in Christian liberty. So he's basically saying, I don't care what you call yourself. You can call yourself the Pope and the representation of Christ on earth. I don't care. Show me in the Bible. And if you can't show me in the Bible, I'm not interested. Charles Spurgeon, 1871. Again, the pagans are laughing at us. We say, put Christ back in Christmas. They know he was never there. They say, how about taking the Christmas out of the Yule and Saturnalia? And in fact, I saw another one saying, put Saturn back in Saturnalia, as they want to worship Saturn, the heavenly bodies. So should we honor the birth of Christ on Christmas? What people don't understand is this is uh, Isis and Osiris, which is in, in uh, Babylonian terms, this would be Ashtoreth and Tammuz, or Semiramis and Tammuz. This worship of the child of God, which is Tammuz, the child of Nimrod, is all over the world. And it has spilled into the Catholic Church. And they are pretending that it's Mother Mary and baby Jesus. But it is exactly the same symbology as Tammuz and Samaramus. This worship of the sun is not hidden in the Catholic Church. If you study their symbolism, it's very clear that they're worshiping Nimrod. And the Protestants who come out of Catholicism, they're protesting the, the indulgences of the Catholic Church, but they're carrying with them the fundamentals. And fundamental to Catholicism is the worship of Nimrod and the worship of the sun. Look at Luke chapter 22 to see what is the instruction that Jesus Christ gave us regarding how we should honor him and worship him. You heard Pat Robertson at the beginning of the clip there saying, he just sort of touched on it in, in passing, that he doesn't believe that Christ was born on December 25th because that's winter. And there's no way a good shepherd is going to have his sheep out in the field in the middle of winter. They would die. So he knows it's got to be much earlier than that. And in fact, there's many who believe that uh, Christ was born during the Festival of Tabernacles, which makes sense. We won't go into that. But let's look here at Luke 22 to see what did Christ tell us to do to honor him. Luke 22 and verse 10. And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. 
follow him into the house where he enters in. And you shall say to the good man of the house, The master says unto you, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? So Christ observed the Passover. And he shall show you a large upper room furnished, there make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire, with a great desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not eat any more, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's going to come back and observe the Passover. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do. This is what you should do. You want to honor me? Do this. This do in remembrance of me. So it's the exact opposite instruction. The world is saying, let's get together and celebrate the birth of Christ. And Christ is saying, get together and honor my death. Because his death begins the whole process of salvation. His death is what he wants us to remember. His death is the God who comes to earth Not as this powerful Nimrod that everybody worships and says, oh, look at this mighty man. He comes as a lamb. And he allows himself to be slain, which took tremendous courage and inner strength. And in that slaying of the innocent man begins our salvation. And coming back to these holy days, these Moedim, they all center on Christ. So by keeping the days that God gives us in Leviticus 23, that's how we honor, that's how we worship Christ. The Passover is where it begins. We have nothing. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So we've all earned the death penalty. If if we have to pay our penalty, then there's no eternal life. I shed my blood and I paid my, my dues. But Christ sheds his blood to pay our dues. So we now have access to eternal life. He is the unleavened bread. Once we walk in this way, we observe unleavened bread to picture us putting the unleavened bread of righteousness in us and becoming like Christ. He is the first of the first fruits, and then we become part of this spring harvest. We then receive the Holy Spirit pictured by Pentecost. This is all the spring harvest. Christ is the first of the first fruits. Pictured by his resurrection, we are the rest of the first fruits, and then we receive the Holy Spirit to become the spring harvest, to help harvest the rest of the world. So if we're Christian, the way we divide the world is not believers and unbelievers, and let's kill all the unbelievers. The way we divide the world is spring harvest and fall harvest. And we have been blessed to be part of the spring harvest, which is going to help Christ bring in the fall harvest, pictured by trumpets, his return, the day of atonement when the whole world is then united with Christ, and then tabernacles, which pictures the millennial reign. Let's just quickly go to Genesis 1, two more scriptures, and then we'll we'll have some time for discussion. 
So, so the very thing that Christians do, celebrating his birth uh, during the middle of winter, which is really the birth of Tammuz and the worship of Nimrod, Christ is telling us to do the opposite. Celebrate my death. Come together and celebrate my death. And this, the timing of this celebration, we have the instructions in Leviticus 23, and we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all followed those instructions. In Genesis 1 and verse 14, it says this, as God is making the sun and the moon. Genesis 1 and verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament, in the heavens, to divide the day from the night. And notice this, you, you, you might just read over this, but let's, let's read it carefully. So there's going to be these lights, the sun and the moon, in the, in the sky, and they have a purpose. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. He doesn't say, I'm putting them in the sky for you to worship them. He says, I'm putting them in the sky for you to know how to worship me. They're part of this worship system. This word that says seasons, we might think winter, spring, summer, fall. The word is actually moed, moedim. And the Hebrew word moedim means an appointment. So God is saying, I'm going to put the sun and the moon in the sky so that you will know the appointments that you have with me. It also defines it as a holy convocation. So when the sun and the moon line up in certain times, God is saying, this is holy time. Every seventh day, when the sun sets, until it sets the next day, that's holy time. That's a holy convocation. And so we come together on the Sabbath, as our ancestors did in Israel thousands of years ago. The rest of the world was worshipping Nimrod. But Israel was looking at the sun and the moon to know when the holy days are. And Christ says, worship him by, a, by looking at the sun and the moon and knowing when the Passover is, and unleavened bread, and Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, all of these holy days. Let's conclude in 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians, we began understanding that Christmas spilled into the church or into the Christian world in 336 AD when Constantine officially declared that this will be a Roman holiday. So all the pagans were celebrating Saturnalia and then he's got Christians and he said, you know what, let's just put this together and we'll, we'll, you, you'll worship Saturn and you'll worship Christ, but we'll do it on the same day. That was in 336 AD. Between Christ dying and instructing his followers to observe the Passover, and 336 AD, what did the church do? What days were they observing? Look what the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, instructs the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. He says to them, Purge out therefore the old leaven. They were observing the days of unleavened bread. And there is a ceremony where they get rid of the old leaven. That's what he's telling them to do. Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, speaking to the Gentile Christians, let us keep the feast. 
These are divine appointments. If we are Christian, then we know we have an appointment with God. We're not going to be late. If I had an appointment with the queen, I wouldn't be late. I wouldn't sleep in that day. I would, make, I would set my alarm, and then I would set an alarm before that alarm goes off to make sure that in case that alarm doesn't wake me up, this one will. And then I would ask somebody, make sure you phone me in case I sleep in. Because there's no way I'm going to miss this appointment. How much greater is our God? And there's no way we can miss these appointments. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so these holy days really are the Christian curriculum. This is our course material. And the entire text of the Bible and all the concepts of the Bible and all the lessons we're to learn from the Bible fit neatly in this curriculum outline. So this year, or in 2016, the Passover will be, begin on April 22nd, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread will run from April 23 to 29. Uh, we hope that this study was enlightening to those of you who haven't heard this material before. We certainly would welcome you to learn with us as we study God's Word and possibly even observe Passover with us rather than participating in the pagan practices of the world around us. So with that, I'll, I'll pause, and or I should say pause, I should say stop. And um, let's open it up for some, from, for some discussion. As we say, we don't want to offend, but we do want to engage in dialogue. So if there are questions or comments or thoughts, disagreements, we can certainly talk about them. And I should introduce my colleague. For those of you who are late, my name is Adrian Davis, uh, co-pastor here with Murray Palmatier. And we, uh, we pastor this congregation together. So if I can't answer your question, I'm sure I can call on my, my brother Murray. Sir. Oh, yeah. The, uh, it's obvious that God made the earth, the uh, sun and the moon as a calendar and a clock. If we didn't have a calendar, could we still keep God's appointed times just by observing the, the sky? And counting the, uh, it's a great question. And I think we could. I think the calendar just helps us predict. So with the calendar, we can say, okay, on April 22nd next year, that's when the Passover is going to be. I think if we didn't have a calendar, then we would need somebody to be counting the days. And, okay, the sun just set. Let's start counting now and, and observe that way. Yeah, and uh, another thing, the, uh, the way God made it is that man cannot corrupt it. Because we can't go up and move the sun or move right. the moon or anything. So if, if man had access to it, he would have changed it by now. Absolutely. Absolutely he would have. Very good. So, so the idea then is to get us away from this rather than because uh, they can't corrupt it. Very good. Yes. Um, you, you were talking from Genesis, and from Genesis it says... Um, what he created was created for the creator's pleasure to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. And that includes yes. all this. He created these lights and these feasts. Very good. Very good. And then there's a question here, too. Ray, there's a question here. Hi there. Oh, perhaps um, we don't really know when... Christ came into this world because he had no beginning and no end. He always was. Yes, John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word 
was God and the Word was with God. But we do know that there was a time, Philippians 2 tells us, that he gave up the Godhead and he became a man. So Emmanuel means God with us. So he did become human. It's just that the the Bible doesn't tell us when. We, We don't know when exactly it happened. And the Bible seems to put no emphasis on when he was born. And all the emphasis to, with precision, on when he died. So, so uh, yes, I think absolutely Christ is there, but he did become a man at some point, and that was a, that was a particular moment in time when Mary gave birth, and he became a human being. We just don't know when. Does that make sense? Great. And then I think one here, and then back to Laura. Um, so my question really is, um, how does one, as high as the high priest of the highest term of the Catholicism as Pope, as the Pope does, of all the studies that he would do as the Pope, how does he become corrupted by the paganism and declare that December 25th was the birth of Christ, as opposed to not recognizing it. That's more my thing. Yeah. And I think that's a phenomenal question, right? I think embedded in that question is the assumption that everyone's like me and you, right? That we want truth, and if we're in error and somebody shows us, we're going to re- we're going to respond to truth. But that's not true. Unfortunately, there are people in this world that don't care about God, that they care about this world, and they care about power, and they care about the wealth of this world and the things of this world. And, you know, they can dress up. They can put on pretty hats. They can wear long beards. They can wear long gowns. It doesn't change their heart. And, and the deception for us is when somebody's in religious garb, we suddenly think they're religious or they're, or they're godly. And unfortunately, the Bible says that Satan dresses up like an angel of light. So it's no wonder if his ministers appear as ministers of righteousness. And, you know, we shall know, Christ says, we shall know them by their fruit. So the fruit of the Catholic Church is pretty ugly. And Christ doesn't pull punches. He says, you'll know them by their fruit. Does that answer the question? Yeah. It's unfortunate, but uh, very few men are sincere in their pursuit of God. And the, the devil has his, his ministry. I think there was another question. We may not know when Christ was born, but we do know about his gospel, when he did the gospel. And that's the most important part of him. He came to bring the gospel that's right. And, and the gospel is embedded in this curriculum. So we really cannot understand the gospel of the kingdom of God unless we in, embrace this curriculum. Very good. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.com dot org.